We all know the Christmas story. At least we think we do. We could all tell some version of it. Angel is visiting Mary. He died? No. Um, did he take words? They had a cave? Maybe we don't know the whole story. Um, I don't know. They're singing hallelujah. Hallelujah. But what if we looked deeper at what really happened? The bad guy king. He thought he should be the king. They are giving baby Jesus the presents that they brought. Maybe there's more to the Christmas story. I did a good job. Hello, good morning. We're so glad you're here. If I don't know you, my name is James, and I'm the campus pastor here at South Hills, South County. And, and uh, I'm so grateful that uh, Jose started us off in prayer. Um, uh, normally, we start off with just straight announcements, so I will be giving the announcements uh, this morning. I just ask that you would pray uh, for us as a church. You all have prayer cards, and I'd like for you to use those prayer cards. I look over and pray over each one of those. Uh, and I do have a prayer request, too, so I'll start us off by a good buddy from college uh, who was literally this crazy guy. We called him El Diablo. He was like the craziest guy in the world. Uh, turned his life over to Christ, and he uh, got baptized. And there's another uh, buddy of ours. He was in our fraternity. Um, and he, with, we thought he was out of the woods with his cancer. It had just came back. And uh, he's got a young son, and uh, he's a young, newly married uh, guy. Things are starting to look great, and all of a sudden he got stricken with this. That uh, They don't know if it's going to be uh, curable, and, and uh, the guys were all getting together, and I said, I'm going to use that prayer request in my church, and, uh, and the guys, are, we collected some money for him, and, and uh, so if you could be praying for my friend, his name is Henry, uh, and he and his family could surely use that right now, and we would love to know your prayer requests, uh, and uh, that would, we'd love to be praying for you as well. Um, also, I want to let you know that when you are here at South Hills, you are not just here at this particular church. We've got campuses literally all over the world. They're all over Southern uh, California. We also have campuses uh, in um, uh, Johannesburg, Puerto Rico, and we just launched uh, South Hills, Kenya. Now, I want to just let you know that uh, we got a message from our executive pastor, Moses, and uh, he was uh, there for the launch, and it was raining, and the car stopped. So that's people going to the launch, parking their cars, and then walking through the mud to get to church for the launch today. So this is really, really cool that we, they are just going at it and they're saying, hey, you know what, uh, we want to we hear what God has to say, and that's devotion. Guys, that's their very first service, and already they have people. Now why? Why, do, why, is, why are we already known in this area? Because before they launched, you, along with all of our other campuses, sponsored uh, kids in the area, orphans. And we have given uh, over 45 uh, kids, orphans, homes and families for this Christmas. And they wanted to come say thank you. And they wanted to come say, we want to see what's going on here in this new church. So it was just a terrific opening there. And uh, we're very, very, very excited uh, to see what God is going to do in the coming days. It's very inspiring. Uh, also, I want to tell you, uh, if you were here uh, on our dream night, you saw it was a lot of fun. Again, again, I got, I got to thank Jim and Glennis for hooking us up at the last minute. I said, can, can we have, and thank you so much again. It was just, they are so hospitable, 
Tamara did work around the clock. The Levines came and everybody just jumped in and pitched in to help out. It was great. Uh, but it was a great, great night. Uh, we dreamed up 2020 and what we're, what, uh, what we're going to do in 2020. Uh, we've got big, big plans. And I want to make it very, very clear to you. Uh, we're going to go more into our plans as we start 2020, so I'm not going to go into everything I talked about at Dream Night, but I want to make something extremely clear. This church will never, ever set goals that we could attain on our own. We will always set goals that will be impossible to get to without God because God is going to get the glory. The things that I'm talking about, I don't have an exact blueprint on exactly how it's going to work, but we do have God. And God is saying, dream big and watch what I do. You are a part of something very special and very unique, a whole new thing here in South Orange County. Live, upfront teaching, uh, stripped down to just very authentic and raw stuff here. Uh, we are going to depend on God for some really big things this next year. And, uh, and some of the goals are huge, uh, but they're supposed to be because we got a huge God. So we're very, very excited what, what's going to happen and what God's going to do here at South Hills uh, South Orange County here. Uh, now, we are in our Christmas uh, series today, and we started it last week. And the point of this series is we're going we're gonna to look at the Christmas story, but we're not going to just read over and skim over verses in the Christmas story and say, well, we, we, we've heard of that story. I've heard that story my entire life. I know how it goes, the angel and the wise men, da, da, da. But we're going to actually talk about who these people were. Last week, if you were not here, we talked about the shepherds. A lot of times we just kind of skim over, well, yeah, okay, angel appeared before shepherds, so what? The shepherds were the outcasts of society. They were the lowest on the economic barrel. Nobody wanted to be around them. They smelled like sheep. They were off, uh, off uh, way over there. Nobody wanted to be around them. And God chose the angels to deliver this good news of great joy. So we, we, we analyzed that, we looked at it, and we're going to continue that today. Now, it is Christmas time, and I'm sure all of you right now are, are looking at, like, okay, what are we going to do, and who are we going to have over for Christmas, and what's the menu going to be, and we all get dressed up, and some, of the, some people wear brand new dresses, or suits, or, or, or not, uh, ties, or uh, whatever. I always wear my Christmas wine shirts, but whatever. Um, but, you know, people get super dressed up, right? to walk downstairs to see people they see every day, but they get really dressed up and they get really into the menu. And the thing of it is, is that we just want it to go well. We don't want, you know, somebody bringing up politics and everybody starts fighting or there's that weird uncle that like nobody really likes and he says something inappropriate or there's the family dynamics where those people aren't talking together so don't let them sit next to each other and all these different things. And we just want a good Christmas, a good Norman Rockwell family Christmas. But then something doesn't go right. And then everything starts to fall apart. Then what? And you have one of those Clark Griswold moments. Like this. Check this out. Before we begin, since this is Aunt Bethany's 80th Christmas, I think she should lead us in the saying of grace. What, dear? Grace! Grace! She passed away 30 years ago. They want you to say grace. The blessing! Hmm. 
States. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One nation indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Amen. 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 <sighs> Catherine, this turkey tastes half as good as it looks. I think we're all in for a very big treat. Yeah. <laughs> Save the neck for me, Clark. <laughs> okay, Eddie. Oh, I told you we put it in too early. Oh, it's just a little dry. It's fine. It looks good. Okay. Yeah, you ever have that? You kind of stop right before everybody says, there's the heart. Um, you know, it's, it's tough because you want it to go perfectly and then everything doesn't go well. And you start to think, will I ever catch a break? Or you know what's even worse is noticing everybody else has it great. How come I don't have that family? How come I don't have those presents under the tree? How come I'm in this tiny apartment without all the, the trimmings? How come I'm at Christmas alone? And you start to compare and you start to say, well, everybody else has everything, but I don't have anything. Will I ever catch a break? Will life ever go right for me? That family looks super happy. How come my family's not happy like that? Will I ever catch a break? There's a word for this, and the word is hopelessness. Hopelessness is the feeling that things are not good and the fear that they're never going to get any better. Now, just a little side note. I know that growing up, and this is actually why I first was wanting to have a relationship or be a Christian with Jesus, is that I was in church one time and I remember the pastor screaming and he was talking about hell. And he was saying it's fire and brimstone and demons and torture. And he's like, do you want to go there? I'm like, no. Do you want to go to heaven? Sure. What do I got to do? Except Jesus, terrific. I'll do that. Just don't, I don't want to go to hell. That's terrible. And, and, and when you think about it, hell, what makes hell hell and what makes it so terrible is not the demons. And it's not fire and brimstone. It's not even Satan. Satan's on the earth roaming around. It's the absence of God for eternity. It means that there, God will never be in hell. So hell is the absence of God forever and ever and ever. That's what makes hell, hell. Because without God, there is no hope. God is hope. It's all, that's what the Christmas story is all about. Now Jesus, he comes into a time of great hopelessness. Matthew 2.1 says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. <clears throat> Magi from the east came to Jerusalem now, during the time of King Herod. Now, you might have read that story and go, yeah, so, okay, I get it. I've heard that story before. I'm sure everybody's heard that verse. Great, Magi from the east, King Herod, I get it. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. But a lot of times you don't really think about what all of this means. That particular verse we're going to spend some time talking about. Now, this is a time of an unbelievable hopelessness. Now, let me just, let me paint you a historical uh, picture here for a second. Now, at this time, the world was ruled by Rome. 
Now, Augustus Caesar was able to do something nobody else ever did. He actually got every, the entire world under Roman power at this time in the world. And so what that meant was Caesar was in charge of the world. But what do you do when you're in charge of the world and it takes you nine months to get to, your, so, to a place that, you, that you're in charge of? So what does he do? He's got to go to the local area and appoint a king in that area. So he finds this half-Jewish warrior uh, named Herod, and he puts Herod in charge of Israel. So Herod is basically uh, the, the, the uh, king of Israel. And the idea being, you're, uh, Herod, you're going to be under my thumb, but you put the people under your thumb. And so Herod, um, in the land of Israel, he, he, uh, the, it's said to be from, from Josephus, said the armies of Herod and Mark Anthony stormed Jerusalem with 11 battalions of infantry and 6,000 cavalry. And according to Josephus, the troops poured in, a scene of wholesale massacre ensued. Herod's army was, deter was determined to leave none of their opponents alive. Moses, uh, masses, I'm sorry, were butchered in the streets, crowded together in houses with no mercy shown to infants or the old or the weak or the female. So I'm going to paint a real clear picture of who Herod was here. Now he said it was God's will, but he personally sacrificed thousands of Jews, his own people, in order to take power. <clears throat> the first thing he would do when he conquered an area was build altars and temples of statues of Caesar and commanded the people to worship Caesar as a god. So Herod, a half-Jewish king in a Jewish land with belief that they were, weren't to make any grave images or worship any other gods, enshrined the person who violently conquered them as a god. Herod, Herod built a three-story palace on top of an iconic rock formation known as Masada. He installed cool and warm baths and columns made of solid marble imported from Rome. He had artists paint frescoes on the walls, on the roof, in a place it hadn't rained in seven years where everyone could see he put a pool. And he had his technologists design an aqueduct system to collect and distribute water to his desert palace. He wanted a state-of-the-art city on the coast. The problem was the coast was swampy and not really buildable. So he drained the marshes, brought in rock and concrete, and built a new coastline and put a huge city on top of that named Caesarea. At the time, the largest harbor in the world was 60 acres. He builds his to be 250 acres. He brought in engineers from Italy that invented a new type of concrete that could harden underwater. The concrete platform stretched 80 feet down under the ocean's surface and was 100 feet wide. He built an underground sewage system in the city that would drain with the tide. He built a massive stadium that sat 500,000. And the acoustics were such that if you're sitting in the back row, you're said to have heard a whisper from the stage. There's a legend in the city that had just been built, and Herod was sailing back from Rome on his way back, and he sees a newly completed city of Caesarea from a distance and says, it's not beautiful enough, I want the whole city covered in marble. So they tore it down and redid it, which took 12 years to complete. He decided he wanted to have a palace between Jerusalem and Edom, his home country, so he mapped out the exact halfway point between the two. His dream was to have the, to have the palace built on top of a mountain. The catch was there wasn't a mountain, so his people built him one. He called it the Herodium. It had a racetrack, gardens, luxury apartments. It housed the biggest pool he'd ever built with a gazebo in the middle that you had to get to only by boat. Here's the point. Everything Herod did was big. Big, huge. Now, he's also very ruthless. He had 11 wives and 43 kids. It's said that he didn't seem to love any of his wives except one but became suspicious of her, so he eventually had her killed. 
Once he suspected one of his sons might be plotting against him, so he had him drowned in the family pool in front of him. He killed several of his kids, suspected coups of which there was no evidence, and he was massively paranoid. At one point, he got into a disagreement with Jewish, Jewish religious leaders. They wouldn't sign off on something he wanted to do, and he wanted to do it anyway, so he had them publicly executed. Another time, he had the most influential Jews brought to the Hippodrome, a huge stadium for chariot races and gladiator battles. He had the doors barricaded, the gates locked, and told the guards, when I die, slaughter every single one of them in here so it will be guaranteed there will be weeping and mourning during the time of my death. He knew nobody liked him. Herod was known to dress in peasant clothing, go out in the marketplace and walk around and listen to people say something negative about him, then send their description to his soldiers and have them executed. Many historians believe that he was the richest person who ever lived. Jerusalem was surrounded by big, thick walls, and it was a city. There was no farmland on the inside. The city was essentially where rich people lived. It was where Herod lived, and the government officials and high-level military officials. These were the people who helped him gain power and sustain power, and he basically controlled everything, the government, the economic system, the religious establishment. If he didn't agree with the high priest, he killed him. He did it twice. If he didn't agree with the religious leaders, he had them executed. You do what he says or else. So you have this close-knit elite group living in the city, so where did they get their food from? The farmers, fishermen, shepherds, and Leolath, most of Jesus' parables were geared to support the rich who lived inside the city. And interestingly enough, most of Jesus' parables were geared toward these people, working-class peasants, using illustrations from their everyday lives. Historians estimate that the peasants were being taxed 80 to 90%. And that's and you try to figure out, what's he doing for all, with all this money? He's building hot tubs, and he's building mountains, and he's building marble palaces. And you and your family are starving to death, and what are you going to do about it? You think to yourself, this is not good, and I feel like it's never going to get any better, wondering, will it always be like this? You are left hopeless with Herod as the king. You feel stuck, so hope begins to fade. This is the climate that Jesus comes into. This is the stuff you don't see in the nativity scene. This is stuff you don't see in the, the, the movies that they make. This is a very bad man. There was literally no hope in this region. Did you ever feel stuck like that? That there's no hope. Maybe it's a relationship or your job or your health. Maybe you're, you're just sick and tired of being sick and tired. Maybe you've left, you felt like these peasants, vineyard workers and shepherds, where is the hope going to come from? I mean, I think that when we think about this, everybody in your mind right now has either in that situation right now or has a story of you're wondering, when's my hope going to come from? I felt those like those shepherds and vineyard workers, and, and, and I felt like, when's my break going to come? Melanie and I wanted a baby so bad. We would talk about it. We, we, would, we would pray about it every day. So it wasn't out of lack of prayer, and it wasn't even out of lack of faith. We prayed every day. We want a family. We tried for several years. Nothing was working. So finally, we got the money that we could do to, to, to have a procedure done. Melanie was actually literally giving herself shots in her stomach every day. So finally, we go to the doctor, and we're sitting in front of the doctor, and we can't wait to hear the good news. And the doctor is standing in front of us, and he says, well, <clears throat> I'm sorry, it didn't work. And when I look over at Melanie, I see all the hope fading from her. The idea of being a mom is fading down to now what do we do? We literally spent all of our money on this procedure. What are we going to do? Hope was gone. Then we heard the words that nobody wants to hear. And that is from this doctor saying, I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do. You ever hear those words? 
I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do. We're having layoffs. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do. This marriage is not going to work. I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do. We tried the chemo treatments, but there's nothing more we can do. Whenever you hear there's nothing more we can do, hope is gone. And this is what these people were going through. When's our break? When are we going to get this? Will I ever get married? Will I ever heal a breakup? Get the job that I need? Recover from an illness? Bring peace to my family? When's my break going to come? I just can't hear one more time. Sorry, there's nothing more we can do. The fact of the matter is, that's true. There's nothing more they can do. But with Jesus, there's hope. Our hope is seven years old and two of them over there in the kids' room. (laughs) Now, this is the backdrop of the Christmas story. So I hope you have a very good understanding of who Herod was. So now when you hear this passage, you know the climate that Jesus is now being born into. It's not this hurried up quick story where you have a nativity scene and and everybody sings and that's it. I hope you have an understanding of the backdrop that we're talking about. So now when you hear this, you'll have a little bit better uh, knowledge of what's going on here. Matthew 2, uh, 2 through 12 says this, And asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod's chief priests and teachers disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem in the land of Judea, in Judah, for by, are by no means least among rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi, or the wise men, secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming to the house. They saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned their country by another route. Now imagine you're hopeless in Herod's kingship. And some says to you, have you heard? A new king has just been born. You're under Herod where there is no hope, and someone says, have you heard the news? There's a new king, and he's just been born. The one true king, the promised king, the king that's finally going to fix things, and I saw him, and the promises they're referring to is the promises from the prophet Isaiah, which happened 700 years before Jesus' Jesus' birth. It says, Isaiah 9, 6 says this, "For, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's here. He's born. That promise, it's fulfilled now. All the misery, all the junk, all the sadness, all the hopeless, it's now over. He's born. He's finally here. Hope is born. Faith begins to to rise because a new king has been born. And the true king, the king, the things are about to change. This is, friends, this is why we invite people to Christmas. This is why. This is why we go tell everybody, come to my church for Christmas. 
It's not to pad stats. It's not to increase some sort of a data line. It's because there are people that right now have their own King Herods, and they're under their own stuff that they're going through. They're hopeless. Finances are their King Herod. Their relationships are the King Herods of their world. Their job, their whatever. And they're under that, and they're like, is there any hope? And you say, yes, come over. Hear the good news. A new king's been born. This is the king of kings. This is the one that God has promised us. This is it. And he's for you. Angel said, good news and great joy for all people. This is it. Christmas is a tale of two kings. Herod, a symbol of despair, and Jesus, a a symbol of divine possibility. This is the Christmas story is all about the poor, the weak, the hurting, and hopeless. It's about the defeated, oppressed, and depressed. It's the message of the oppressors do not win. That when your faith is in Christ, when your king is Jesus, in, the, in those moments when the story is at its lowest point, the story isn't over because the Herods of the world don't get the last word. Jesus does. The Herods of the world do not get the last word. Jesus does. That person that says you're worthless doesn't get the last word. Jesus does. The doctor says that, I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do for you, does not get the last word. Jesus does. To do with you. The, the, the person that says, you're, 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 I, I don't love you and I don't want nothing to do with you and, and, I, and I could do, I'm going to do my own thing, they don't get the last word. Jesus does. All of the things that are dragging you down, let's get real here, guys. Let's get honest. We are all going through our own stuff. We've all got it. doesn't get the last word. Jesus does. Cancer does not get the last word. Divorce does not get the last word. Hatred does not get the last word. Unemployment doesn't get the last word. Depression doesn't get the last word. Eating disorders do not get the last word. Addiction doesn't get the last word. Anxiety does not get the last word. Even death does not get the last word. Jesus, the promised king, gets the last word. The Christmas story is a reminder that just because I don't see a way out doesn't mean that there's no way out. There's this idea in the gospel story that comes up over and over again. When you think it's over, it's not really over. Redemption is born from destruction. Isaiah uh, 11 one says this, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. There's an interesting thing about Caesar and Herod. They're dead. Been dead for thousands of years. Their kingdoms crumbled. Jesus laid down his life so that everyone can get, enter his kingdom and then rose again. You see, the Herods of the world will eventually die, but our king lives forever and ever. The kingdom of God, Jesus' kingdom will go on forever and ever. It cannot be toppled or defeated. It just keeps going and growing. And when we place our faith in Jesus, we are a part of it. The early Christians called this the good news, the gospel. Now I know that it's hard, especially during Christmas time, because we have an idea of what Christmas is supposed to be. Like I said earlier, we all have this idea that, you know, everything's supposed to be perfect and good. And a lot of us, we, we look at what we don't have and the families we wish we had or the, the, the things that we wish we had. I want to be as clear as I can with you. Looks are deceiving. 
I know that when you look at somebody, you go, wow, if I just had that, then I would be happy. If I just had that person's spouse, I would be happy. Uh, job, I would be happy. If I had that person's respect, I would be happy. If I had that award, then I would be happy. If I just had that award, because then it would validate that I'm, some, I'm good somehow. If I just had this thing, I'll be happy. And then everything's fine. Looks are deceiving. Growing up, when I was a kid, I was really into skateboarding. And I was really good. I tried it again when I was 40, and I had to go to the emergency room, but that's another story. But <clears throat> when I was growing up, I was actually really good. It was my outlet. I was 12 and 13 years old. My parents aren't even sleeping in the same room anymore. I was, I was, I, I, I was confused and bummed and scared and wondering what my life was going to be like. But skateboarding was my outlet. And I loved the Bones Brigade. They were this Powell Peralta team. It was Tony Hawk and Lance Mountain and, and uh, you know, Steve Caballero, all these guys. They were awesome. But what was really cool was a guy that didn't even need a skateboarding team. He was his own brand. And his name was Christian Hasoy. And Christian Hasoy invented a new thing for skateboarding, revolutionized everything at the time. Skateboards were just like this. They all had the same exact shape. But he actually invented the hammerhead, the front of the hammerhead. So a picture is like, you see it's like a hammerhead skate, uh, skateboard deck. And he was the best. And we have some pictures here. And the reason I chose these pictures is because I found on, online, these are the same posters I had in my room when I was a kid. I had those posters in my room. I wanted Christian's life bad. I saw him at a skate competition in Irvine. And, I, and, and he was a good-looking good guy. He was sponsored by every company. So, like, he had all the cool clothes. All the girls liked him. He was the best skateboarder. And I wanted his life. I didn't want mine. I'm 13 years old. My parents are getting divorced. I'm awkward and confused. I, I, there's no way out. I wanted that guy's life. And if I had that guy's life, then I'm happy. Then I'm good. If I just had his life, I'm good. Well, what about being a pastor when you grow up? No way. That's lame and boring. I want his life. But his life wasn't what I thought. Here's his story. Check this out. My name's Christian Asoy. I started skateboarding when I was approximately seven years old. So I immediately picked it up. As time went on, when I became professional, it was like me, Tony Hawk, Stevie Caballero, Lance Mountain. Those guys, we took skateboarding to a whole new level. And uh, really just wanting to innovate a new culture, that's what we did. Island signature tricks. He dominated the skateboarding world in the 70s and 80s with his fluid style and signature tricks. Christian Hasoy is a skateboarding legend. During the early evolution of skateboarding, Christian went from being the best amateur skateboarder at 12 to reaching legendary status as a professional at 14. Yet as his career escalated, so did the emptiness he felt inside. And I tell you, when I was, you know, filling my life with being a pro skateboarder, that was it. I was just wanting to win contests, trophy after trophy, then it was money, then it was sponsors, then it was girls. I filled it with girls and then I was never satisfied. Then I filled it with drugs, I was never satisfied. In the early 90s, the skateboarding scene changed, and the vert-style skating Christian was most known for wasn't as popular. Christian's love for skateboarding waned, but he soon found a new passion, drugs. 
not going to skateboard contests anymore and just living this like, you know, drug, drug addict lifestyle. And so here I am caught up again and then I went to prison, you know, basically got arrested at the Honolulu International Airport carrying a bunch of crystal methamphetamine, over a pound of crystal meth. And um, that's when reality confronted me in a way that, you know, I never knew. Called my wife, first phone call, who was my girlfriend at the time, and I said, they're telling me in here, I'm looking at 10 years, and I was like, and I don't know if I'm gonna make it. And she's like, you know what, I love you. We're gonna try to get through this together, but we just have to trust in God. You know, and all I can think about was God. What's God gonna do for me? I'm in jail, you know what I mean? Isn't God like some happy place that you go to at the end of your life when you're finished? You know what I mean? I thought God was way up there, we're down here, and when I'm at the end of my life, you know what, I'll go there. And so, you know, I really didn't have any idea what that meant. She's like, yeah, we gotta trust in God, Christian. God's gonna get us through this. We're gonna make it through. And I just went, she goes, get a Bible and start reading the Bible and we're gonna do everything we can, okay? I love you and click. Christian's girlfriend contacted her uncle, a minister, and he shared the plan of salvation with Christian and encouraged him to read the Bible. You know, and I just went, whoa. And immediately all I could do was just want more and want more. And I just kept turning the pages going, this is who God is? You know, and, and immediately I said, you know what? If I'm gonna do 10 years, I'm gonna do it finding out who God is. While in prison, Christian earned the trust of a federal judge. Now an ordained minister, Christian uses his former celebrity to reach today's youth culture. It's not about me anymore. It's not about Christian Hasoy, but I'm using Christian Hasoy to reach this generation. God raised me up in this life of skateboarding so that I can reach everyone in this generation. The youth culture of today needs to hear this message of hope. They're hungry for something, something real and something new. And there's nothing more, more satisfying than, than the gospel. All those things, all my skateboarding trophies, the career, you know, everything is going to pass away, but God's word shall abide forever, the Bible says. And, you know, so anything that I've done before Christ was, you know, there's a lot of accomplishments, a lot of, I guess, um, things that I am credited for, but, you know, nothing compares to now that I have a relationship, you know, and, and you know, just knowing Jesus Christ personally. So <clears throat> he said something interesting. He said, the youth culture of today needs to hear this message of hope. That's true. So does the adults. So does everybody. Everybody needs to hear the message of hope. Christian Asoy has an influence over this younger generation. I get it. He has influence over me, and I'm in my 40s. I get it. He's like a skateboarding icon. You have influence over somebody. You have influence over people, maybe at your work, maybe within your family, maybe, maybe a relative or something. You have influence over somebody too. They need to hear that message of hope too. You could do that too. Oftentimes at church we sit and we go, well, that's the pastor and he's going to say something and then I'll watch it and then I'll leave or that's, that's his story or that's that person's story. But God's got something for you. Church isn't a one-person show where we, we, we kind of entertain you for a half hour and then you go on your way. He wants to do this with you. He put people in your life. Why? Because they need the message of hope. 
the good news of great joy for all people. It's our responsibility. A lot of times, guys, we get comfortable thinking, well, I'm, I'm pretty good. I got money in the bank. I'm pretty good. I got this stuff. And you're like Christian thinking, um, God's up there, and when I die, I'll make it right with him, and then I'll go to heaven, and boom, we're done. And then you get into trouble, and you go, God, where are you? What happened? I mean, what's going on? You know, I, I'm in trouble. I'm desperate. My life's falling apart. Things are falling apart. Well, are you talking to me? No. Are you going to church? No. Are you getting in my word? No. Well, I'm mad and moved. <laughs> You're just not looking to me. We have to understand that what we have, people want. I want to spend my life dealing hope. I want to be a hope dealer. And the only way I can do that is through the church, because the church belongs to Jesus, and Jesus is hope. That's what we want to do this Christmas. If you're looking for any last-minute Christmas items or any last-minute gift ideas, give somebody hope. Be open. Let them be real. Let them share their ugly scars. Don't judge them. If you get the urge to judge somebody, check out your own stuff, and you won't do it. But we have that message of hope, and we want to give that to everybody this Christmas. And uh, we're going to do this together as a church family. Uh, God is blessing this church. I'm looking around, and I'm thinking, boy, Melanie, can you believe this? <laughs> I mean, this is a product of what God can do. Let's, let's, let's experience those miracles with them. Let's go out and tell everybody we know that we've got something that they need, and we're going to do that with love. Let's pray. Father, if there is somebody right now, God, that's here, that is at the end of the rope, and they need to just get a, a, they need a restart. They need a fresh start. They need you. I pray, Father, that they'll be humble enough to, to say this prayer with me, and that is this. But Jesus, I don't want to do this on my own anymore. So the best way that I know how, I'm asking you to come in to my life and be real in my life. I'm asking you to be my savior. I want to know you today, tomorrow, and forever. I ask you to forgive me for my sins, and I thank you for forgiving me for everything that I'm going to do in the future. And I want to be with you uh, forever as my savior. So would you come into my life and be real today? Father, you know who said that. Father, I pray that they have the strength and just to write it down, just to put it on a card and said, I said that prayer today. I did that today. So I could come alongside them. I can, I could walk with them with this. That we could encourage them. Father, I know that when we come to church or when we walk around or when we see people, everybody looks like they have their happy families. But Father God, I pray that everybody here knows that Facebook posts aren't reality. I pray, God, that we could be a community of believers, believers in you, Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I pray that we could do that boldly. And I could pray that we could do that honestly, being honest with each other. God, it's in our weakness that shows your strength. So God, we just thank you so much for this community. We thank you so much that you're starting something new here in South Orange County in this community that everybody sees that, that, that thinks that we have it all. But God, we know that... Uh, that you have something for this community, and we are humbled that we get to be uh, your hands and feet in it. It's in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.